0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth, with John Aidan Byrne.
1: One night, I was sitting on the edge of my bed, and I had a gun loaded. I was drunk, and I was hopeless. I had no siblings, I had no future, I had no hope. And I pulled the trigger, and the gun didn't go off. And it was like scales fell off of my eyes, and I realized what I could have done. And that story I told you about meeting my wife... That happened three days after this incident. So had I ended my life and taken my life into my own hands, the 30 years that I've had
2: with a wonderful woman and five glorious children would have never happened. That was Joseph Brooks telling me the story of his incredible life and unlikely success and about the moment his life took the most amazing positive turn.
1: I wanted to be successful, and I moved away from the environment that kept me down and kept telling me that I'd never amount to anything, that I'd never be anything, that I was not the right skin color, that I didn't have the education. I knew there was something beyond that, all to do it, and so I set out, and I did it, and um, I was able to build one of the largest personal training studios in Texas and become celebrity fitness expert and I give God the glory for that because I'm not
2: smart enough to do all this. Coming up is more of my interview with Joseph Brooks, author of the new book The Value of a Single Woman. He's an actor, guest speaker and a successful businessman. His is a unique love story, a rags to riches epic tale of endurance moral principle and devotion to his family i'm your host john aden Byrne.
0: a voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific economic political and social upheaval life on planet earth searches for the unvarnished truth answers solutions and above all hope for our existential crisis Joseph Brooks'
2: message has already impacted and inspired the lives of so many people. Born into poverty on San Antonio's violent east side, this wonderful African-American endured bullying, And abuse at school and lost both parents by the age of 18. I first asked Joseph to tell me why he wrote his powerful new book, The Value of a Single Woman. John, thank
1: you so much for having me on the show. Yes, uh, The Value of a Woman is a book that actually I wrote many, many years ago when my daughters were born because I wanted to give them a guideline on how women should be treated and respected. The book was inspired by my wife, who uh, we were married for 30 years. She just passed away on January 11th of 2020, and she was my best friend, the love of my life. We were married young, and we had five children together, and now my children are now adults the youngest being 19 and the oldest 26. But when I wrote this book, it set the precedent for my daughters. And so my daughters grew up with a reassured self-esteem. So they didn't just settle for anything. And when they began to date, I actually felt sorry for their dates because my daughter's standards were so high (laughs) that these guys couldn't meet up to them. So I decided to pass this book on. And I believe that every woman could benefit from realizing her value. And, you know, John, I look at the beginning of the Bible when there's Adam and Eve. And it was first Adam, and then God created Eve as a gift to Adam. And so I tell women when I'm speaking that they're a gift to us. They are a present. And so they're to be admired and lifted up and encouraged and so that's my perspective, and it's been well-received by women because they, um, they're they happy with the fact that a man can write from this perspective about them. And my family, you know, they're my kids, so I'm just dad. So they're happy that I wrote the book. They're happy that it's had such an impact on, on women's lives. And interestingly enough, there have been some men that have given me positive feedback and have told me that they looked at women in a different way but after looking at this book and reading the book they realized that they needed to value the women in their lives no no matter what position the woman held whether mom or girlfriend or wife daughter and these men decided to look introspectively and say I need to appreciate these women in my life so it's been well received I've been well received I I have gotten some kickback from some guys because little
3: sample and a flavor of the value of a single woman. What do you advise in this? What are the takeaways?
1: One of the things that I would I would tell a single woman is never to sell. Um, so often times, we're in a society where the media kind of tells you, it's okay to lower your standards and to sell. I would tell a single woman to make a list, a list of what she looks for in a, a man, a partner, a husband, and also don't date anyone you wouldn't marry. You want to go for the long term. You want to go for the long haul. Because I tell women from a a man's perspective, we're generally hunter-gatherers. We like the thrill of the hunt. So if we're trying to date you and you just give us everything easily, we don't respect you. But if you have a high standard, then we look to aspire to that standard. And if we don't, we're probably not the man to be in your life. So I would tell women, single women, to keep your standards high, do not compromise. And that, I would hope, would be a great takeaway for every woman.
3: So you would probably describe yourself as a traditional, old-fashioned, old-school kind of guy coming to this perspective with a good heart. Uh, would that be a fair assessment?
1: You better believe it, yes. I am an old soul, a romantic. Um, I, when my daughters were growing up, I made it a a point, not only to spoil my wife on Valentine's and just random days. There are days that I bring her bouquets of flowers or write her poems, or but I would also do that for my daughters at every age and every level of their lives, because I believe that there is a Prince Charming, and, and you can decide if you want to be that Prince Charming or not, and I am from an old school. I know I'm coming to a new generation where things are a lot different, but I think deep down inside of every woman, that She desires, and I believe there's a man out there that will give them what they desire.
3: Now, with the world changing so quickly, and we have the Me Too movement and all kinds of debates and discussions about women's rights and so on, it's been raging since the 60s. Are women today in America and in the Western world in a better place, or where do you see that? I
1: don't think they are, honestly. I believe that uh, women are still striving to make a name for themselves. I know with my daughters, I see that. I have some educated daughters. They're college educated. They're brilliant. They're beautiful. They're smart. And they still have so many barriers to break through. And I don't know. I, I would hope that this would end at some point, but I think it's a struggle that women will have to go through for a long time and unfortunately what happens in that is I've seen women become calloused and hardened and their hearts have become hardened and so they aren't able to receive love or graciousness or kindness because they've had to predicate their presence on being stronger than a man or rising up to the ability of a man and it's unfortunate because Somewhere there, the heart of a woman, which I believe is very pliable and very caring and giving and sharing, has been lost. And as far as the movement, I understand men. I've grown up around men. I've been in the locker rooms. I know what's been said and what's been talked about. and, And it's unfortunate. But I applaud women for standing together and for a common cause and shedding light on what they've been going through. And being a victim of... Uh, Sexual abuse myself at a very young age, although I'm a male, it's different, but it isn't different. You still go through the same traumas. I think women need to keep forging ahead, but in so doing, don't lose that person that they were created to be.
3: We talk about... Other aspects of your life, you're an actor, fitness expert, and you have a, an extraordinary background growing up, and you came out of that in great shape today. And no pun intended, you're a fitness expert, we realize. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> what is the secret of a happy marriage?
1: Saying yes, dear. and relationship coaching. And I tell people that marriage and relationships are work. In the beginning, yes, the honeymoon stage, Google eyes, all that, that's cute. But when it comes down to the brass tax, when you can't pay the bills, when there are eviction notices on the door, when your car is being repoed, when the kids, you don't, you don't have enough money to get food for the kids, when you're on welfare. Do you stick together? Or do you and we married at a young age, and the things I just described, we went through all of those. We were impoverished. We were on government assistance. I was working, but I was working, making maybe $5 an hour. And every month, I had an eviction notice on our apartment. We were very close to living in a homeless shelter. But through all of this, one of the things my wife never did is she never demoralized me as a man. She never made me feel less than. She never said, you need to get a better job, or you should have finished college, or you should have, when she could have, because it was a tough time for our family, but she never did. So, I believe having respect for your spouse, and even in those tough times, no matter what you may be thinking, don't say words that are going to cut and hurt someone, because you can never take them back. And so, with us, we just grew closer. You know, we were we had what I jokingly say is government cheese. It was this cheese that, a commodity, it wasn't even yellow, it was like orange. But what would happen is my wife would make these great meals out of that cheese and eggs, and we'd sit around as a family and we would eat and we would grow grow closer. I couldn't pay the cable bill, so we had no TV. So we just entertained each other as a family. And everything that we did, we did together. And we never criticized each other, we never got angry at each other, and and my wife and I just understood each other. And I think when you enter a relationship, you need to really, love is, is sacrificial, and you really need to love that other individual. And when times get hard, you draw closer together, you never separate. And when my wife got ill eight years ago, many people asked me, why didn't I just leave? my mind. You know, it was over a million dollars in medical bills. She had open heart surgery. Her kidneys were failing. Her liver failed. Amputations on both feet. Um, her eyes were, she was going blind. But I just continued to stay close to her until she literally took her last breath. Because when I took the vows, said for rich or for poor, better or for worse, in sickness and health. So I decided that I was going to stick with those vows, and although I wish I had the more richer and the more healthier vows, but anyway, (laughs) um, we stuck together, there's really no secret, it's just you have to love that person more than you love yourself, and ultimately, if I would tell you one thing, I did put God at at the forefront of my marriage, because as a young husband and young father, I had no clue. There was no book written. And so I was doing all this on the fly. I was trying to be a husband. I was trying to be a father. And I was learning as I went along. And the thing that sustained me is my faith. I just prayed and went to church and had a support system there. And so my wife and I, if we had an issue, we'd we'd talk about it. No matter how hurtful it may have been, sit down and we discuss it. That way there was no room for it to fester and then ultimately
3: blow up. You had a very special and close relationship with your wife from the very beginning. I read and heard that she got you to go to church initially.
1: Can uh, you tell us about that? Yes, she did. I met her at, in a college library, and I remember walking up the stairs, and i it was like I was being led into this library. I walked up the stairs, I turned left, and I turned right around the bookcase, and I saw her, and immediately I said, that's my wife. And I sat down across the table from her where she was doing some work, and I was so nervous. And I grew up in a bad neighborhood with some of the worst gangs in the country. But when I saw her, I was nervous unlike anything I've ever been. And so I struck up a conversation, got her phone number, we talked for like 15 hours a day for like two weeks. After two weeks, I said, would you go on a date with me? And she said, no. I said, what? She said, you're messed up. She said, I've been talking to you for two weeks. You've told me your background, your history, that you don't go to church, that you don't have a relationship with God. And she said, but I do. I've changed my life, and I will not compromise. And John, I got so upset, I hung up the phone. I said, there are women out here that'll do whatever I want, go wherever I want, and I don't because she had said, if you want to date me, you meet me at church. And I picked back up the phone, called her, and I said, where's the church? And I went to church, and I went looking for an offense. And there was a guy there. He was about 6'4". And the first thing he did was he hugged me. And John, I crumbled like a baby. I just cried in his arms. It was like surgery had taken place. My heart was fulfilled. I was healed. And I never turned back. And so I stayed. I kept going to church. And after a month, I asked her if she would go out on a date with me. And she said no. She really gave me a tough time. <laughs> and be um, said, out of ring, I asked her father for her hand in marriage and then I'd ask her to marry me and after two years she agreed and we got married and stayed together ever since.
3: That's extraordinary. Tell us so about growing up, your early life in a dangerous San Antonio neighborhood. You went from welfare and bullying, sexual and physical abuse and losing both parents by age eighteen.
1: My mother it was a very strong woman. Um, physically, mentally and uh, spiritually she was just strong. But she was 42 years old when she had me and she didn't she wasn't ex- expecting me. She showed up to work and she told the lady that she worked for, us. she said, you know, I've been walking and exercising but I still and, and rapists and traffickers and pimps and prostitutes on every corner. And my father was a truck driver, so he was always away from home, so it was just my mother and I. And she told me at a very young age, she said, listen, just because you grow up in this neighborhood, you will not speak like the other kids, you will not act like the other kids, you will not join any gangs. If you get a girl pregnant, you will marry her and take care of her, I will not. And if you go to jail, I'll never get you out. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, I'm only six, why are you telling me all this? So she wanted to establish in me that there was no chance that I was going to blame my community or my upbringing on any negative thing that I may have done. And she told me the story of how my dad always liked his clothes dry cleaned. So she would go to a dry cleaner across the street from where we lived. And there was a very unassuming man. He was the owner of the dry cleaner. And he said one day, he said, Mrs. Brooks, if you ever have any trouble in this neighborhood, let me know. And she couldn't figure out what he was talking about, but she never had any trouble. Even though there were so many bad people around, no one ever said anything to her. So come to find out that he was the head of the mob, whole sector of the city and he had told everyone not to say a word or not to bother mrs brooks so my dad he died when i was 11 years old he had lung cancer very heavy smoker and drinker but he was the most loving kindest man that i've ever met in my life and i've met a lot of men he died when i was 11 it destroyed me and during that time i was going through my own issues i was My babysitter by uh, some family members and I never told my parents. I uh, didn't want to put that burden on them. I just held on to what had happened to me. And when I was in school, I was severely bullied. I mean, thrown in lockers. Kids would spit in my face. after that I did go through a depression after she passed away and and I didn't at that time have a relationship with God so I consumed alcohol and I would drink myself to sleep every day and one night I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I had a gun loaded I was drunk and I was hopeless I had no siblings I had no future I had no hope and I pulled the trigger and the gun didn't go off And it was like scales fell off of my eyes and I realized what I could have done. And that story I told you about meeting my wife, that happened three days after this incident. So had I ended my life and taken my life into my own hands, 30 years that I've had with a wonderful woman and five glorious children would have never happened. So I went through a very tumultuous time growing up, but my mother always told me never blame anyone for your circumstance and never be a victim. And so I didn't. I went through it. It was painful. I cried, but I kept moving forward. And so I'm, I'm not a big excuse kind of guy. I, you know, I've been through a lot and I didn't make excuses. I wanted to be successful and I moved away from the environment that kept me down and kept telling me that I'd never amount to anything, that I'd never be anything, that I was not the right skin color, that I didn't have the education. I I knew there was something beyond that, I had to do it, and so I set out, and I did it. And um, I was able to build one of the largest personal training studios in Texas, and become a celebrity fitness expert. And I give God the glory for that, because I'm not smart enough to do all this. You can't let your situation or your environment all
2: make choices and i chose to go beyond where i grew up after the break we'll pick up my interview with joseph brooks when he'll offer his wisdom on rebuilding broken and crime-infested neighborhoods in the u.s and you may just be surprised who his political hero is these days
4: why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years, a relief that came in the most unexpected form meditation, and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, ninth secretary of the VA, says Where War Ends will inspire countless others, leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls Where War Ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, Where War Ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favourite library or independent bookstore.
2: We recorded our fascinating interview with San Antonio's Joseph Brooks before the globe was shut down because of the terrible coronavirus pandemic. I hope you're all staying well as we are here as we record in the studios in the U.S. I checked in with Joseph Brooks as we were in production and he sent me a nice wee note saying, when life gives you lemons, you create a magazine. That's right. Joseph Brooks, a rags to riches success story, has launched a digital magazine for the business community and CEOs and it's called Business Boss magazine download it for free by emailing Joseph Brooks fifty at yahoo.com that's J-O-S E P H B R O O K S 50 at Yahoo.com. The inaugural cover is superb. I'm your host John Adenburn. Here's Joseph Brooks explaining to me why he was bullied at school as a youngster and then succeeded despite the odds. I went to
1: an inner city school, and what triggered the whole bullying thing, it was I was in sixth grade, and my mother was very big on enunciation and my verbiage and the way I spoke. And so we would watch Alex Trebek, we would watch Jeopardy, my mother and I, and she, we would play that game so that I would learn. So I'm in sixth grade, I'm in this inner city school, I don't speak slang, And we're sitting in class, and the the teacher, she's doing a study on Martin Luther King. So she asked the young lady that's sitting in front of me to read an excerpt out of the book, and the young lady proceeds to read, and she says, Martha Luther the King. And I said, no, it's Martin Luther King. And that girl turned to me, and she stared me straight in the eyes, and she said, I'm going to beat you up. And so when when the bell rung, she came back and she slapped me as hard as she could on my forehead. And every day for the next three years, every class period, every minute, every lunch period, that's what she'd do. She'd yell out, forehead, and she'd run and slap me. So everyone would laugh and then everyone felt, you know, if she's doing it, let's all do it. So then it just started a issues and every day I was bullied in one way or another. I mean, it was, it was severe. I had a guy walk up to me, I'm in PE class, and he just walks right in front of my face and spits in my face, the whole class laughed. Oh, it was very traumatic, very difficult, yes. And like I said, I didn't tell anyone, I held on to this. I wasn't gonna tell my mother and, and weigh her down with it. So it was something that I just held inside. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was a separation between Hispanics and and Blacks. And there was always a battle going on. Uh, Very seldom did the two get together and agree on anything. And about, well, when I was 16, we had an influx of gangs from California who came to recruit in my neighborhood. So all the kids that I grew up with, by the time I was 17, they were gunned down, all of them. I'd never joined a gang, I never sold cocaine or crack like the other kids were doing. I think I was scared of my mom, but I was never asked to do it, and I saw, tragically, so many deaths. So many kids that I grew up on the playground with and went swimming at the the city pool with, dead and just it was traumatic and so it was a a a melting pot if you will and if you did try to succeed or if you did try to better yourself you were ridiculed you were persecuted you were made fun of and it was just such an environment where you could not thrive. it wasn't encouraged and in school we were just passed through i went to the counselor and i said i'm interested in going to college." I'd like to be a doctor. And the counselor looked at me and said, get out of my office. None of you are gonna be doctors and we're just gonna pass you through. She said that to me in high school. So that's what we grew up with. And so we had no hope, we had no aspiration, we had no dream, we had no goal. And I'm gonna be honest with you, John, I'm in high school, I have no direction and I I don't know what I'm gonna do. And they had a book order come around, and I ordered this book, and it was called The Art of the Deal, and I ordered it because the guy on the cover looked really cool, Donald J. Trump. I ordered this book, and I started reading this book, and I realized there's more than my neighborhood in this world, and so it gave me the inspiration and the ambition to go on, and even though the drug dealers would come and show me wads of money, I knew what they had to do to get it. But I also knew that there was something greater because reading this book, this guy showed me, hey, if you just keep forging ahead, maybe you can make something of yourself. It was kind of a guiding life again
2: in in my teen years when I was very impressionable. But it, it helped. Businessman, celebrity, fitness guru seen on TV, and now a new book, The Value of a Single Woman, published by HPN Books. Joseph Brooks has inspired me. Now he is also busy on some movie deals and he tells me all about his roles. I was contacted about a year ago uh, by this director.
1: He'd come here from California. His name is Jomer Dulatry and he wanted to do a film on the tra- anti-human trafficking and San Antonio at that time, I think we were number one in human trafficking so he wanted to come here And he wanted to film the movie. So he cast me as the villain. And he said, it's so funny because it goes so much against your nature. So if you can pull this off, it means you're a great actor. So this movie, um, I play the villain, Doc Brown. And my commodity are humans. And I traffic humans. Children, women, girls. And it's to bring awareness to how critical this issue is. And the reason I agreed to do this film is to bring awareness, to show people that this is real. It's a trillion dollar industry and it's happening every day. And so throughout the movie it's an action packed film. Uh you could take like a John Wick type film, it's a karate type film and um but it has a very strong message. And the director is amazing. So we looked for the release early next year. They, uh, they held it up for me for a little bit because of what I was going through with my wife. And so we regained filming. We just started filming again this week. But I'm very excited about it. And uh, the other day I was contacted by another director to play a judge in their upcoming movie. So, I'm, you know, I'm 51 years old. I'm really, I'm just taking it all in, John. I'm excited. I get to speak to you and hear your wonderful accent.
3: Please. It's a pleasure. You're speaking to a proud American citizen born and raised in Ireland. Oh,
1: wow, wow, wow. I'm sure you'll a visit pleasure. there one day. Oh, man, I've always wanted to go to Ireland.
3: Well, I think they welcome you there warmly with your inspiration and your great backstory. Oh, I appreciate that so much, and you've been, you're, you're great, thank you. I wanted to ask you, Saul, about Donald Trump is in the White House. Well, right. I'm going to guess you cast your vote for him. Yes, sir, I
1: did. How do you rate him? You know, my wife and I, when she was alive, we always had this discussion. She would hope that he would not tweet, and he would not talk. Mm. And she was okay, she loved him other than that. And yes, he's wrong. But you know what? I give him an A rating, and being in the black community, I'm not a hero. When people hear that I'm a Republican and that I support Donald J. Trump, and that I've supported him for years since I first read his book and I saw The Apprentice. I have the Donald Donald Trump line of clothes. I have the tie and the shirts and the cufflinks. Yes, I. you know, this guy, he gave me guidance. I, I followed him throughout his career, never thinking he'd be president. But... I think he's the man that we need in office right now because, John, honestly, can you think of any other human being that can take as much ridicule and persecution yeah. on a daily basis this man has and his family and still stand? I
3: couldn't do it. Yeah, the, the Teflon Don or whatever, it just rolls off him and he gets yeah. up for the next fight.
1: Right! And it's just, so I give him an A rating if nothing else but for that... Because honestly, I want someone defending our country and in the White House that is gonna protect us and has our best interest against foreign threats. And you know, he'll stand up to anyone. And no, he's not as cool as we would hope he would be. I think as Americans, we need to support him. We need to support whoever's in the White House because they're supposed to have our best interest in mind. And so yeah, he has my backing, he has my vote and i look forward to him running another
3: term you grew up in san antonio you still live in san antonio you saw and remember the poverty of your childhood what in your view is the solution to improving Pro neighborhoods raising up uh, the standard of living, eliminating gun violence, opioid addiction, hopelessness, unemployment, and getting families to come together. Do you have any sort of overarching theme on that, any solution? You know
1: what, John, I wish I did. I grew up in a culture, and I I try to explain this to clients and people that I speak with. There is a dynamic that happens in the African-American race, and oftentimes the Hispanic race, but Hispanics now are, are more so encouraging and building each other up. But in the black community, it's a mindset. It's a victimization of, look what the man has done to me. And, and what I would do, I would encounter men, grown men. They would, they would be sitting out on the corner with a bottle of wine and I'd say, why aren't you working? And they would say, well, the man's keeping me down. And I would look at them and say, aren't you a man? What man is keeping you down? And they will always blame it on white people. And I said, no, you are making a choice. No one forced you to go get that bottle of alcohol to sit here on the corner all day long. You made that choice. So I know that people want to come into our communities and and offer change and and great programs. And it's gonna help a lot of people. But until individuals decide That no longer am I a victim, but I can overcome my situation and I can be better than, then anything's going to change. I grew up with gang members and this gun control, it's a joke because I saw guns that not even our military had and they're just trading them on the street. There's no way that you're going to control that aspect because... What these young men would tell me is that he who has a gun has a power. So these gang members and everyone with these guns in the inner city, they ran our neighborhood. And I remember, John, what the drug dealers would do is they would have six pit bulls, and they would walk those pit bulls right through, through the streets of our neighborhood, and we would have just random dogs that ran the neighborhood. Well, these ga- these drug dealers would let Arby's and make $5 an hour when he can go out in 10 minutes and make $50,000. So dependent on the individual, I had every excuse to be a drug dealer, or gang member, or murderer murderer, and I could have blamed it on my upbringing, the fact that I was abused, the fact that I was bullied, the fact I could have shot up a school and said, well, I was bullied, so I want to shoot everyone. No, you make choices. And even though you go through pain, you go through sorrow, you go through those things, you still have to, at the end of the day, make a choice. So I admire the programs that are going into the inner city, but it depends on the individual. It depends on them wanting to change. And until they're ready to do that, no.
3: Life is good. You're an author, actor, fitness expert, speaker. You own uh, Fitness Center's A renowned guest speaker, you've attended private parties frequented by top celebrities. A movie coming up, another movie deal. You also have a regular spot on your local TV station, KSAT12, the top variety show, SA Live. What what else is on the calendar for you, Joseph? Oh my goodness, I tell you, I'm, I'm just
1: leaving space. Yeah, you know, I was married 30 years. My wife told me before she passed that she wanted me to live life after she was gone and ultimately meet someone. So at this point, I'm not doing anything else except saving space for someday if I meet that someone, I'll have time for her. So right now, I'm just to focus on the projects that I'm in and uh, just really try to make those the most important things right now.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460. 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.